between 1966 and 1967, a small West Virginia town on the Ohio River endured a 13-month period of invasion by flying saucers, men in black, and a host of various other assorted paranormal phenomena. Chief among them, the strange, monstrous winged being known only as the Mothman. Paranormal investigator and writer of books on the strange John A. Keel visited the town during this period, famously chronicling the various weird happenings and eventually publishing his recollections of this period in a book called The Mothman Prophecies in 1975. The book remains to this day one of the most important books ever published in terms of its influence on the state of paranormal thinking and culture. Keel blended various strands of what had previously been separate fields, providing the beginning of a unified take on paranormal happenings, and popularising the idea of so-called window areas, places where the veil between this world and others is thin, and a mind-boggling array of bizarre entities can leach through, populating our mundane world with a variety of strange visitors. This much I assume you might know. So much has been written about Kiel and about the Mothman in particular, and there are any number of other places where you might turn to for a detailed blow-by-blow account of what happened during those odd 13 months. This episode isn't that exactly. Instead, I'm going to cherry-pick my own favourite parts of Kiel's book, given my own take on it and its importance in the history of the genre, and throw in as many side stories relating to the Mothman as I can, beginning with a tragic love story, not something I get to do very often on this show. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and this time around, you find me at the cabin in the woods in Wild West Cork in the midst of the first big storm of the year. The wind is howling, branches are coming down, and the power is out, so I record this lit by candles jammed into whiskey bottles. It makes for a spooky atmosphere for this most mysterious of topics. Joining me for this episode is a bottle of Fox's Rock Session Ale, a pleasant, not-too-hoppy beer brewed in Dundalk by Pierce Lyons Brewery. Things are about to get paranoid, so look to the skies, don't answer the phone, and keep your ears open for the flutter of dark wings in this episode, Love and Other Bugs Beyond the Mothman Prophecies. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You can prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Welcome to the episode, everybody. You're welcome to the cabin. It's a stormy night. Uh, This episode I'm really excited for. It's a topic... I suppose I've avoided for a long time. I've always been fascinated by the Mothman, but like I said in the intro, it's one that's so well covered. I didn't really want to come at it until I felt I had my own take at it, and I've been researching all week. I've been reading. I just happened to be reading the the original Mothman Prophecies book this week, and the idea for the episode kind of spiraled out of that. So this is going to be complicated. I've got notes and books all around me. I'm going to be going back and forth between different sources, but I've done my best to get this into a particular shape that should feel natural, but hopefully will feel different from other people's takes on the Mothman prophecies itself. Now, how can I possibly have anything to say about this that you won't find 
done in more detail by the likes of Arian Gullius over at the Saucer Life podcast, well, I can't say that it will be better, but I can only say I hope it will be different. And anyway, you you come here for the facts, but hopefully you stay for the charm and for the beer. And I've got quite a, a little bit of both lined up, I hope. Anyway, I do have some shout-outs for the beginning of the episode. So I had some fun conversations with people online this week about sort of paranormal topics. The uh, ever-wonderful Victoria Pearson got in touch over on Twitter. Uh, She is an expert in um, the history of Ireland in the 18th century, a little bit earlier than my sweet spot, which is sort of like, I suppose, the the long 19th century. But Victoria um, is really great for providing me with uh, old ghost stories connected with Cork and with Northern Ireland. She has connections in both. So... She sent me this message. She says, Hi, Kian. I hope you don't mind, but can I send you this to get your opinion? I was listening to the podcast on St. Kevin's yesterday, and this came to mind. This photo was taken on Christmas Day 2018. I have a tradition with a friend that we send each other a photo of our Christmas morning... Uh, a, a, a photo of our Christmas morning of our presents. I sent this photo and thought no more about it. She then provides a photograph of said present. It's a bottle of Hendrix gin, which comes in a a black, black glass bottle. However, a couple of days later, my friend sent me a photo highlighting what he saw in the bottle. And she then sends a close-up of the bottle and reflected in the black glass is a a pretty convincing image of a a face. It's the sort of, you know, those kind of uh, can you spot the face in this picture that you see in old uh, books of the supernatural it's a pretty good one, actually. You get all, you know, you get ones that aren't too convincing, and you get some that are quite. This one is quite stirring, quite striking. She then says, "It always looked like a face to us. We talk about it often, but never knew exactly what it was." Uh, and she uh, explains where she was living next to a city cemetery, at the main burial ground in town. And uh, I think there must be a lot of residual trauma in the area. This being a location, of course, in Northern Ireland. Also, that Halloween myself, my friend and others had visited Loftus Hall for a ghost tour. We have a lot of theories, but no conclusions. I'll put the, I'll make these pictures available with her blessing on my Twitter, so you can have a look and decide for yourself. If nothing else, it's a pretty spectacular uh, ta- uh, version of Apophenia, which is, of course, the, the human talent for spotting patterns in, in, in random data. We're pretty good at seeing things like faces in, in images. We're sort of evolutionarily geared towards doing it, doing so for obvious uh, survival reasons. It's better to, if, if you were out in the bush back in the day, it's better to uh, think you see a tiger when there isn't one than to uh, not see one when there is. So a false, uh, a false positive is, is, is better than a false negative and is probably, you know, selected for in terms of evolution. So but, you know, this is a particularly good one. I'll put it on the Twitter and you let me know what you think. So that's a cool story. I have a lot more from Victoria, but I'm going to have to spread them out, I think, over a few episodes. So thanks, Victoria, for that one. She mentioned a few things there. The St. Kevin's episode, that is when I went to a little field trip in Cork City to a haunted asylum. I do hope with that episode I struck the right tone because um, it's it's a place that had a lot of real trauma and and horribleness associated with it. I certainly, I don't necessarily mean to emphasize that side of things, but I certainly don't mean to sort of pass over it or overlook it either. We're not that kind of show. We don't deal with very serious things like that very often, but anybody who lives in Cork knows the stories associated with it. And actually quite a few friends 
and sent me messages after that episode with personal stories often about family and, and a lot of a lot of bad things that were done there by the health service at the time and yeah I, I certainly don't want to brush over that sort of thing hopefully nobody felt the episode was in poor taste like I said on the show I do think I do think that uh, folklore that builds up around these places uh, especially places of tragedy or death I do think it is part of how a society deals with tragedy and interprets it so I do think it has its place in in the study of folklore but let, let us know what you think on our twitter where we are at strange ireland perhaps you have a different take oh I also had a lovely message over on instagram from no applesauce about our f- previous episode dawn of the wild that was our uh, our audio drama which is all about uh, the first bigfoot sightings and, and the footprint reports in the 1950s so that was a very strange episode one that's very different to what we usually do i'm very proud of it we had a lot of work put into that by a lot of great actors and musicians if you haven't checked it out please do i'd love to know what you think about it so check it out and let us know so thanks to no applesauce she said she really enjoyed it she'd been looking forward to it for Uh, a couple of weeks as it took a while to get that one out the gap and she listened to it while working out which is nice to hear i approve so uh, i want to favor folks i've been putting a lot of effort into promotions over the last couple of months hopefully you've noticed numbers are going up and that's fantastic Uh, we put a lot of effort into the episodes and it's great to see them reaching a wider audience i would absolutely love people to Uh, pause for a second and go and put a review especially if you're listening on the apple platform whatever that's called nowadays it's not called itunes anymore i think it's apple Podcasts. reviews really help it will make the podcast show up um, on people's lists wherever they're looking so just put a few stars there folks say something nice say something terrible say something funny i don't care (laughs) if you do say something nice or interesting i'll be very happy to read it out but that's a small way that you can you can really help us out so on to our main uh, our main idea for this episode our main theme of course the mothman prophecies so how am i going to come at this a little bit different i'm going to get started by saying that in july of 2019 a group called american lore theater had a stage show uh, basically based on the mothman story and what i love about this is that the writer charlotte allen allen kind of sounds like it might have been an Irish name originally I'm not sure she decided to reframe the whole story so instead of it all being about John Keel which if you've read the book you know it really was she chooses one of the witnesses of the Mothman creature himself uh, Linda Scarberry which is a great name I've always loved it and there's an interview uh, from American Lore Theatre and when asked what intrigued you about the story Charlotte says Linda, Linda, Linda. The first time I heard her description of seeing Mothman on her roof, cold and lonely and desperate to communicate, I knew that that is what I wanted to write about. I wanted to tell Linda's story. These events radically changed her life and she never even got a film deal out of it. She ended her marriage, had a baby, lived through a horrific tragedy, fell in love. She saw Mothman the most out of everyone, And she alone was adamant that he wasn't evil, wasn't dangerous, wasn't a death omen. He was just lonely. He didn't belong. I think Linda herself might have understood what it's like to feel lonely and alien. And of course, in her interview, she states outright that she is still keeping secrets on Mothman's behalf. 
Linda passed away a few years ago, but her version of events should not die with her. This is absolutely fantastic. I can't tell you how many times I've read the general story of what happened in Point Pleasant in, in those 13 months, the whole Mothman story, and Linda Scarberry is almost always a footnote. She's just one of many people who sees the Mothman. Of course, her encounter is the first one that really hits the news and kicks things off, but she was a very interesting person. And there's there's an amazing love story uh, associated with her that I didn't know about until very recently. And I'm going to try and provide um, a little bit of detail for. So this kind of got me started down that particular rabbit hole, wanting to learn a little bit more about Linda. So what do we know about this love story? Well, in AP Magazine, we have an interview with, and I'm going to murder this name, I do apologize. We're getting into the realm of Swedish uh, Swedish UFO researchers from the 1960s. A man named Hakan Blomkvist is uh, doing an interview with this magazine. <clears throat> and he's talking about a fellow by the name of Ake Franzen. No idea if I'm saying that right. I'm really sorry. This guy is an absolute footnote in the history of this stuff. He might have been a bit of a big deal in, in Sweden himself, but there's very little known about this and most of the material is written in Swedish. So here's what I was able to find out. So... Our boy Haken Blomkovic says, My late friend and ufologist Ake Franzen actually visited Point Pleasant in 1969. So that's two years after the phenomena had finished. Interviewing about 30 Mothman witnesses and visiting observation sites. Ake didn't just become an ordinary ufological field investigator in Point Pleasant. During his stay, he fell deeply in love with one of the main witnesses, Linda Scarberry. He later had plans to emigrate to the US, but couldn't find a job. Ake became a good friend of local reporter Mrs. Mary Heyer, and also several of the local Mothman witnesses, and Ake and Mary often went together by car during field investigations. One of the things Ake noticed in 1969 was that several of the witnesses suffered from post-traumatic stress. Linda Scarberry showed the scars she had on arms and legs. After the experience, she had suffered from shock and was hospitalised. One morning, she woke up at the hospital with arms and legs badly scratched. At AFU, we have preserved the correspondence, many love letters between Linda Scarberry and Ake Franzen. This is fantastic. I, I couldn't believe when I found... I just love the idea of this Swedish guy in the 60s, interested in UFOs, reads about the Mothman, makes his way all the way over to West Virginia starts hanging around with all the witnesses and has this relationship with one of them, is is on the verge of uprooting his whole life and somehow starting a new life in the US and just somehow it, it, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't hold together, it doesn't come through. And I wonder what we're not learning here, what the details were of of, of what the, that time was like and, you know, how close they were. It would be amazing to get a hold of some of those letters just to see what was going on. But yeah, a lot of the stuff written about this uh, supposedly is is only in Swedish. If anybody out there knows more about this, I'd love to know. Do uh, send on whatever information you might have. But Linda Scarberry is very young. She's 18 or 19 in 1966 and 7 when she's having her initial Mothman um, encounters. And she's married. She's married very early. So she's married to Roger Scarberry and they're living alternately with their parents in a basement apartment and in a trailer um, in Point Pleasant as well. So very young people um, encountering extraordinary things and clearly having their lives upset and turned upside down. And 
I will say throughout the whole Mothman prophecies and the following years of the people studying the phenomena, these witnesses always stuck to what they said. Um, we will talk about whether or not the image of the Mothman has been altered over time and mythologized, but by and large, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of sincerity and genuineness associated with the characters involved. I don't know what really happened in Point Pleasant in those months, but something it does feel like something weird was going on, and people stuck to their story for a very, very, very long time afterwards. Okay, let's talk about what Mothman is, what Mothman looks like. I'm going to go to an article written by Lauren Coleman, an incredibly prolific writer on cryptids and strange animals. So he writes in, in Crypto, Crypto Zoo News, Lauren Coleman writes, From what I have found, the eyewitnesses have changed their descriptions down through the years to fit the popular cultural concepts. News articles and the earliest descriptive John A. Keel writings in FSR and uh, Strange Creatures from Time and Space, that's a book John Keel wrote before the Mothman Prophecies where he kind of retells in shorter form the story of 1966 and 67, they discuss a, quote, large bird, with the mention of an angel, used more in reference to the wings, not the body. I can confirm this myself, having read through a bunch of the original newspaper reports that uh, predate anything John Keel wrote. Generally, the animal is referred to, or the creature is referred to as a giant bird, though very often they refer to it as being man-like as well, so it's clearly neither one nor the other. Anyway, to continue with our quote from Lauren Coleman... In Keel's myth-making The Mothman Prophecies, the more human view of the creature begins to be reinforced. By the time Scarberry and others are re-interviewed in the 21st century, especially since 2002, for books, documentaries and news clips, the Mothman has become a fully humanised creature with a head, arms and legs that were not there in the first reports. These representations, Frazetta's cover, that statue in Point Pleasant, the moth of the movie, have all grown to be mirrors of myths based on the thoughts of insects, aliens, and authors. This creature has little or nothing to do with the real Mothman of 1966, truly an avian mystery, now mostly seen through Keel's demonological glasses, unfortunately. So I'm going to clear up a few things here quickly. The reason there is a spate of interviews with the witnesses in 2002 is, of course, the fact that the, the movie came out in 2002, the one with Richard Gere and the wonderful Laura Linney. It's a great film. It's entirely different from the book. They're, they, they're not even pretending to tell the same story. They're, they're, it, it's set in contemporary times. They change a bunch of details. But the screenwriter, screenwriter Richard um, Hattam, Hattam did an incredible job of kind of cultivating this air of mystery, this feeling of almost cosmic horror. It's like a... There's a kind of an X-Files vibe to it. It's very 90s and well, well, well worth a look. I didn't really appreciate it at the time when it came out, but now I find it a wonderfully atmospheric and incredibly stylish film. So take it as a companion piece to the book. It's very different. It's trying to achieve very different things. You will be disappointed if you go into it as a huge fan of the book, wanting wanting something similar. It, it kind of leeches into certain aspects of the book and then brings some of the screenwriter's own ideas in there about the, the idea that the Mothman is some kind of harbinger of doom. Incidentally, you will read articles all over the place about, oh, the Mothman was seen before the accident at Chernobyl or before various other kind of disasters 
that are famous around the world. All of that really begins with the movie. That sort of mythology is, as far as I can tell, strictly tied to the film and, and doesn't really predate it. That's what I think. Anyway, if you know something I don't, please do get in touch. Anyway, Lauren Coleman then kind of gets into more detail about exactly what the Mothman looked like. He says, As far as Linda Scarberry's first accounts, yes, she talked about it being an angel, a big bird, and, quote, wobbling. In one description days afterwards, she said it had muscular legs like a man. But she also said she could not see its head or arms. I don't even know if the eyes are even in a head. Decades later, in new interviews in person and on television, Scarberry has described a head above shoulders, arms in addition to wings and thin legs. I cannot help but think that her changes in descriptions reflect a popular cultural influence of what people begin to think and feel about what Mothman should look like versus what was originally seen and described. I think I agree with Lauren Coleman here, which is why I'm going to try and stick to original sources as much as I can to see, well, what, what did people report back in 1966 and 67? I'm going to see what was in the newspaper reports before John Keel wrote them up, because his book is the is, is, is the lens through which most people have known has known this story since the 1970s. The reason Lauren Coleman re- references Frazetta's cover, that's Frank Frazetta, of course, a very famous paint, mid-20th century pulp novel cover painter. He did a, a famous cover for The Mothman Prophecies, where the Mothman is far more human-looking with shoulders and a head and arms. Uh, the original Mothman, as described, is generally taller than a human, sort of seven, eight feet. It's got wings. Some Some folks said it was feathered and some didn't. It had two large glowing eyes and a lot of people said there either wasn't a head or that the the head didn't strike them as being prominent so artists have tended to draw the giant glowing eyes kind of built into the shoulders of the animal with these kind of hunched wings all around it which which is an image I'm absolutely taken by and I always have been since I was a kid it's something completely strange and different the creature has no arms just wings and this big lumpy head with the with the eyes set into the shoulders, pretty much. It's unlike anything else in folklore, in fiction, in cryptozoology. It's utterly preposterous and bizarre, and I truly love it. And I actually, I don't, I don't like the more human-like takes on it. I don't really like the Frazetta cover, even though he's a favorite artist of mine. I don't really like the Point Pleasant statue that they have today. I, I really prefer the original. Uh, drawings of the animal as this sort of weird impossible hunched glowing eye being another interesting thing about the mothman you know in comparison to other kinds of cryptids is that it's relatively set in time and space it's not like bigfoot it's not a a thing that seems like a natural animal that has a habitat and can be understood in a an ecological sense it's not something that has been sighted lots of times around the country it, it pretty much, by and large, is tied to this time and place, to the town of Point Pleasant, or at least the county around it, in 1966 and 67. Another great aspect to this story is the setting, the town of Point Pleasant itself. It kind of conjures up the the sort of epitome of the, the almost magical mid-20th century small-town America that uh, some of us are so enamoured with from years of movies and novels set in this time and place. It's got all of the classic sort of small town things that we, we love. It's It's got, um, there's a Lover's Lane area which features prominently. You've got the small town surrounded by forest and woods. 
There is the TNT area, which is a, basically an old World War II munitions dump where a lot of the creepy sightings happen. You've got a Chinese diner. You've got all of these sort of classic small town locations. There's no bars, though, in, in, in Point Pleasant in 1966, which is the only thing that I'm perhaps not quite as excited about. Anyway, we'll get stuck into John Keel's book a little bit. So he's 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 trying to, like I said, he's trying to bombard you with a very wide range of paranormal encounters. There are men in black, there are aliens, there are UFOs, and he's collecting all of these stories. Interestingly, in the time period, this is before alien greys have really become the standard image of extraterrestrials. If you want more information about that, we did a two-part series called The Coming of the Greys, which you can check out. But suffice it to say that this is more in the period where aliens are either, you know, tall, blonde, handsome, Nordic-looking, helpful space people, or they're from any number of wide-ranging, creepy, bug-eyed monsters of the 1950s variety. One thing I do have to talk about is how genuine is John Keel during all of this? Is he is he making stuff up? Is he having fun? Is he not letting the truth get in the way of a good story? It's extremely hard to know. A lot of what he says can be backed up by newspaper reports that we can access that were written before he wrote his book. There are also a lot of letters between himself and Mary Heyer, who is a reporter who works in the town. She works for the Athens Messenger a newspaper from the town of Athens, which I think is about an hour away from Point Pleasant. There's a sense of paranoia within these letters. It does seem to me that he believes that something strange is going on, and over the course of the book, he comes to believe that he's being persecuted by some mysterious force. Now, in the book itself, he he ties this to the concept of ultra-terrestrials, which we'll get to, but let's just say for now that in the letters, which, of course are happening in the 1960s and not in the book, which is the 1970s, he seems to imagine that he's being hounded by forces that are perhaps a little bit more terrestrial. He's a little bit more literal, and we get the, we get the idea that something more physical, something more nuts and bolts might be happening here. This is an idea that he sort of toyed with over the years and clearly had come to a different conclusion by the time that he managed to write the book. Uh, he's, but he definitely feels in these letters like something sinister is going on. And he even makes a grim prediction of disaster, which, of course, to those of you who know the end of the story, is going to be quite prescient. John Keel begins the book with an oddly sceptical note. He tells a story about uh, a black-suited stranger who's uh, wandering the remote backwoods of West Virginia in uh, 1967, who visits a house and uh, kind of scares the inhabitants of the house. This mysterious black-garbed figure, of course, turns out to be none other than Keel himself. He's out on an investigation, his car has broken down, and he's just looking to use a phone. However, his unusual appearance rattles the local residents, who are not used to such visitations. And shortly after um, this kind of shocking visitation, the silver bridge collapses. 46 people die. This is the biggest tragedy that ever has occurred in this part of the country. It's a huge deal and it is basically the climax of the whole Mothman story, if that isn't too ghoulish a way of framing it. But the way Keel ends this little story is by saying, uh, what if, in the years after this, people tied the story of the mysterious visitor to the tragedy that happened afterwards? 
it's an oddly sceptical note. It's as if he's encouraging us to interpret uh, these weird stories as being accidents and happenstance. Uh, again, apophenia, the fact that people tend to make connections between things whether or not they truly exist. It, right from the beginning, plants the seed in your head of well, what exactly is it that Kiel does believe. And indeed, throughout these early chapters, he, he kind of retains this semi-sceptical, tongue-in-cheek kind of a take towards the stories. When he's plying you with all of the giant bird stories, he consistently calls them things like shaggy bird stories, implying that they're not to be taken literally. He makes fun of UFO witnesses, good-naturedly, but nonetheless kind of pointing out that he realises all of this stuff sounds a little kooky. But this isn't going exactly where you think it might. He's not heading towards a sceptical destination with any of this stuff. He has his own uh, ultra-terrestrial take which is quite different to anything that came before and was, as we'll find out, to prove very influential indeed. We get the first inklings of uh, what some call the PUFT, the Paranormal Unified Field Theory. This is an idea that comes from Jeb Card, the author of Spooky Archaeology. If you're listening to this, I'm sure you know who he is. If you don't, he shows up on... Uh, Blake Smith's excellent Monster Talk podcast a lot and he's also on In Research of a lot which I think I prefer even even more if that's possible just because they're both experts on the history of paranormal ideas so that the puffed the paranormal unified field theory is the idea that really all of these different ologies were never that different at all and that setting them up as separate areas of study ufology cryptozoology parapsychology is just a bit of an artifact of the sort of mid-20th century respect that science had in the public consciousness. Uh, Jeb Card reckons that the, the, like the, the walls separating these things were breaking down by the 1970s and that they're utterly gone now. And um, there's this idea that the early researchers who had particular ideas about things, like if you were a UFO researcher and you believed that they were nuts and bulls spacecraft, and you were interviewing people, you'd probably ignore the bits where they you know, got a little bit mystical or religious with their stories, you might even leave them out of your of your reports because they didn't really fit with your preconceptions. If you were a Bigfoot researcher who felt that Bigfoot was a flesh and blood creature, you might leave out the bit where your witnesses also saw, you know, glowing lights in the forest or UFOs associated with their Bigfoot sighting because that doesn't really fit in with your cryptozoological take. So again, you've got this idea of the walls coming down. And if any of this sounds familiar to you, in 2018, the online independent series Hellier was rather a big hit within the paranormal community. That was made by the folks at Planet Weird, of course, and they lean heavily into this. And in fact, the Mothman Prophecies book is a key plank of that show. And basically, the whole show is about what they call synchronicities, the idea that seemingly coincidental things have a sort of a cosmic significance. And I'm not going to rag on people who made a very popular show and did a lot of hard work for it. But um, I watched series one. I probably won't watch series two. One of their main conclusions is that uh, somebody, uh, the phrase a tin can occurs to somebody while doing a sort of a ghost helmet experiment. And then later on, while exploring a cave, they find a tin can. And this coincidence is seen by the cast as being meaningful. And that's where they kind of hang their hat on it so make of that what you will anyway 
Here's what John Keel says about the idea of breaking down the walls between the different sorts of, you know, weird, weird fields of study. He says, Back in the 1920s, Charles Fort, the first writer to explore inexplicable events, observed, you can measure a circle by beginning anywhere. One of my favourite Charles Fort quotes, by the way. Paranormal phenomena are so widespread, so diversified, and so sporadic, yet so persistent, that separating and studying any single element is not only a waste of time, but also will automatically lead to the development of belief. Once you have established a belief, the phenomenon adjusts its manifestations to support the belief and thereby escalate it. If you believe in the devil, he will surely come striding down your road one rainy night and ask to use your phone. If you believe that flying saucers are astronauts from another planet, they will begin landing and collecting rocks from your garden. I like this. He's kind of saying, you know, we, we, we find what we set out to find and we interpret what happens in line with our pre-existing beliefs. Except that he's also kind of, he goes on to say that he does believe there's something funny going on, but that the phenomena is imitative, that it sort of picks up on what you want it to be and will give you what you expect to see. So he's kind of kind of having his cake and eating it here too. He's kind of saying something weird's going on, but it's not what we think it is. In the chapter called The Flutter of Black Wings, John Keel hits us with a, an incredible amount of weird stories about flying humanoids and weird bird sightings, none of which really sound like the Mothman, with the exception of one strange one from England of all places. It's a sighting from Kent. This is a, and I'll argue, it's not a particularly well-known case um, of, of a Mothman sighting. Mothman is very tied to Point Pleasant, as we said earlier. But this is one that I do find interesting. Uh, one, one version of it is called the Saltwood Mystery, which I'm taking from the Flying Saucer Review. That's not John Keel's reference. His reference is a book called The Humanoids by Charles Bowen in 1969. I wasn't able to get a hold of that, but I was able to get a hold of Flying Saucer Review, March to April issue 1964. It is a sort of an amateur group of people, some of whom, in fairness, were involved with the RAF and, and stuff like that. It's published in, in, in London for many decades and went through periods of being considered credible and being considered a bit silly, but here's what they have to say about the Saltwood mystery. The evening of Saturday, November 16th, 1963, was cold and bright, and there was a new moon in the sky. Four teenagers, three boys and a girl, were walking along a country road in the area of Sandling Park, near Hythe, Kent. John Flaxton, aged 17, a painter employed in the Kent village of Saltwood, happened to look at the sky above the woods at Slaybrook Corner, and noticed that one of the stars above him appeared to be moving. He admitted he was frightened, for not only was the star moving, it was descending towards the four young people. It was uncanny. The reddish-yellow light was coming out of the sky at an angle of 60 degrees. As it came towards the ground, it seemed to hover more slowly. He said, I grew cold all over as it vanished behind a clump of trees. The next thing to happen sent the four young people rushing for safety and terror. A bright golden light suddenly appeared in the field alongside them. It was about 80 yards away, John Flaxton declared, floating about 10 feet above the ground. It seemed to move along with us, stopping where we stopped, as if it was observing us. The light was oval, about 15 to 20 feet across, with a bright, solid core. It disappeared behind trees, and a few seconds later, a dark figure shambled out. It was all black, about the size of a human, but without a head. 
It seemed to have wings like a bat on either side and came stumbling towards us. We didn't wait to investigate. One of John's companions, 18-year-old Mervyn Hutchinson, a plastic moulder of Bartholomew Lane Saltwood, also saw the figure clearly. It was just like a bat with webbed feet and no head. All four teenagers were convinced they had seen a ghost. So I'm just going to point something out here. Is so so most people know this story because it's a minor footnote in the Mothman prophecies. John Keel uses it while he's building up to the story of Mothman in Point Pleasant. Is this really a Mothman, or is this is he sort of retconning? Is he just taking an old weird story and kind of shaping it to fit in with the main story he's about to tell? Well, I think the details here are quite striking. They're quite similar. To the to the American Mothman, you've got like again such a weird figure and one that really doesn't have any connections to other elements of cryptozoology or folklore or uh, uh, fiction that I know of. Anyway, you've got the wings, the height, and, and, and primarily the lack of a head. It doesn't have the glowing eyes of the classic Mothman, and the webbed feet are a bit weird. Definitely an interesting story. Um, and this this version of it is from just a little bit after it actually happened back in 1963 which is three years before the American Mothman sighting. I'm just going to mention one little bit on top of that from this article. It says another witness writes after hearing about Keith Croucher's experience I went with a friend into Sandling Woods to investigate. In, in the clearing in the woods we found a vast expanse of bracken that had been completely flattened as if some huge and heavy object had rested there. Nearby we found three giant footprints. They were clear footprints, almost two feet long and about nine inches across. They must have been a full inch deep. On December 11th, we went down to the site with two reporters and found the wood lit up by a strange pulsating light. It seemed to come from the heart of the trees. We kept watch at a distance for over half an hour, but saw nothing except the light. We were far too frightened to go any closer. So there's various other stories to show that the, the woods were seen to be haunted by weird lights and sounds and things for, you know, a few days after the initial sighting. Also of note is, this is kind of in line with classic 1950s monsters like the 1952 Flatwoods monster in terms of you've got a, a mysterious light implied to be a UFO and then immediately after you have a sighting of a creature implied to have come from the UFO. Also like the 1955 Kelly Kelly Goblin's case. That's different to the Point Pleasant Mothman. While his sightings happen during a UFO flap, nobody ever makes an implicit link between the two. He's never seen in proximity to a UFO and he's never seen coming out of a UFO. So that is certainly one difference. But I do, out of all the stories that John Keel provides in his kind of build up to the Mothman story, this one is particularly striking, I feel. In in Chicago in, in 2017, there's a spate of sightings which were investigated very thoroughly by Alison Jornlin, who has a fantastic YouTube series where she goes to every single place where the Mothman is seen. I think there's 20 or 30 videos and compares the reports to what she sees when she gets there, looking for discrepancies, uh, you know, anything that seems to point out whether it might have been true or not true. She seems to have been given quite a lot of hassle by monster fans for this because she's not afraid to point out when the location doesn't seem to match with the story or where she finds kind of physical mismatches that make the story seem unlikely. 
Um, so, but that's the kind of um, on the ground reporting I certainly uh, appreciate. So I'll put a link in the show notes to her investigating. She even goes to Hythe and Kent to check out this Mothman encounter. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can see a video of what the site looks like. She traveled all the way from Chicago and I didn't even go there when I was living in Essex. So certainly my hat is off to her. I'm going to go through just a few of the key Mothman sightings just to give you a flavor of what they were like. Pay attention to the odd mix of phenomena reported within them that imply even from the beginning that this was not a straight cryptozoological animal. This was something a bit weirder. There were elements of UFO cases and poltergeist stuff here that make it clear we're dealing with something different. So I'm going to take this one from John Keel's book. This is one of the spookiest ones. John Keel writes... On the evening of November 14th, 1966, Bandit, a big muscular German shepherd, had dashed into the darkness and vanished. It was about 10.30 that night, and suddenly the TV blanked out, Partridge said. A real fine herringbone pattern appeared on the tube, and at the same time, the set started a loud whining noise. Outside on the porch, Bandit began wailing. Partridge picked up a flashlight and went outside to investigate. The dog was sitting at the end of the porch, howling down the hay barn in the bottom. Partridge continued, I shined the light in that direction, and it picked up two red circles, or eyes, which looked like bicycle reflectors. Still, there was something about those eyes that is difficult to explain. When I was a kid, I night hunted all the time, and I certainly know what animal eyes look like, such as coon, dog, and cat eyes in the dark. These were much larger, for one thing. It's a good length of a football field to that hay barn, probably around 150 yards, still those eyes showed up huge. As soon as the flashlight picked out the eyes, Bandit snarled and ran towards them. A cold chill swept over the man, and he felt a wave of fear which kept him from following the dog. That night, he slept with a loaded gun beside his bed. The next day, he went looking for the dog. I walked out to the barn, looking for tracks. Here and there I could see Bandit's paw prints, they were rather easy, easy to find, for he was a heavy dog, and the area was muddy. At the approximate position of the eyes, he found a large number of dog tracks. Those tracks were going in a circle, as if the dog had been chasing his tail. Bandit has simply vanished into thin air. Rather spooky stuff. But the most important encounter probably is the Scarberry one. This is the most famous one, and one of the most dramatic ones. This is the one that kind of puts Mothman on the map. It gets the initial newspaper interest. It's only after this comes out that people start to look into it and the earlier uh, sightings and encounters start to become noticed. So I'm going to take my initial reading from uh, newspaper reports from the time. This is from the Point Pleasant Register from Wednesday, November 16th, 1966. And the headline, Couples see man-sized bird, creature, something. It was a bird or something. It definitely wasn't a flying saucer. Two Point Pleasant couples said today they encountered a man-sized, bird-like creature in the TNT area about midnight last night. Sheriff's deputies and city police went to the scene about two o'clock this morning, but were unable to spot anything. But the two young men telling their story this morning were dead serious, and asserted they hadn't been drinking. Steve Mallett of 3305 Jackson Avenue and Roger Scarberry of 809 30th Street described the thing as being about 6 or 7 feet tall, having a windspan of 10 feet and red eyes about 2 inches in diameter and 6 inches apart. It was like a man with wings, Mallet said. It wasn't like anything you'd see on TV or in a monster movie. 
The men and their wives were in Scarberry's car between 11.30pm and midnight when they spotted the creature near the old power plant adjacent to the old National Guard armoury buildings. The creature was seen standing on three occasions and was described as being extremely fast. It flew about 100 miles an hour in flight but was a clumsy runner. Deputy Millard Halstead said that he had seen dust in the vicinity of a coal field but could have been caused by the bird, he said. I'm a hard guy to scare, Scarberry said, but last night I was for getting out of there. They did just that, but the thing followed them. They said it was hovering over the car, apparently gliding, until they reached the National Guard Armoury on Route 62. We went downtown, turned around and went back, but there it was again, Mallet said. It seemed to be waiting on us. He said the light grey creature then scurried through a field. It had also flown across the top of the car. It apparently is afraid of light, Mallet reasoned, and maybe it thought it was scaring us off. The young men said they saw the creature's eyes which glowed red only when their lights shined on it, and it seemed to want to get away from the lights. They said it looked like a man with wings, but that its head was not an outstanding characteristic. Are they going back to look for the creature? Yes, Mallet said, this afternoon and again tonight. Today, Scarberry said, but tonight, I don't know. Notice how the women are sort of edited out of this. They're not considered uh, worth talking to or interviewing. Anyway, they actually did go back the next day. So the next day, Sheriff George Johnson holds a press conference. It's incredible to me how this, like, totally batty <laughs> left-field sighting gets immediate interest and respect from authorities. They hold a press conference. The press start calling the animal Mothman, apparently based on a Batman cartoon character or a TV show character. And... Yeah, the, the, the two couples who were incredibly young, they're between 18 and 20, they go back to the TNT area and find footprints. So again, a little touch of the cryptozoological here, making it feel more like a flesh and blood creature. And uh, one of them, Steve Mallet, apparently sees something fly up inside one of the igloo buildings at the TNT area. And things really kick off then. The, the whole TNT area is flooded almost immediately by people looking to see the monster, people with shotguns wanting to hunt the monster. And the very next day, we get one of the next classic encounters, which is uh, Marcella or Marcella Bennett's uh, sighting, who is a, a young mother holding her two-year-old daughter, Tina, while visiting friends who live near the TNT area itself. And um, herself and family are outside the front of the house when they see a strange figure make an unexpected appearance. This is from mothman.fandom.com, which is a surprisingly good resource for getting into the original details of this story. So they write, Suddenly a figure stirred in the darkness behind the parked car. She saw the creature out of the corner of her eyes as she was unlocking the car door. She first saw a man's legs that looked like they were covered with grey feathers. She did not see any feet. Like a slow motion scene in a horror film, she pulled her eyes up, the wings were drawn in towards the body. The head was tilted sideways. It looked like a bird, but was too big to be a bird. Standing only a few feet away from her was a giant man-bird, its head sunken into the shoulder area. She saw no red eyes, but later said she might have been too frightened to notice. Marcella described the creature as over six feet tall with feathers. It looked just like a giant bird, but yet a man and it was standing with his shoulders arched and its neck down. She was terrified but unable to run. I just stood there and looked at it, but I couldn't figure out what it was that I was seeing, said Marcella. Her brother saw it, but would not come towards where it was. 
Eventually, they run inside the house. The creature approaches, seems to be trying to get in the door, and even starts kind of making sounds that seem as though it might be up on the roof. And uh, by the time the police arrive after being called, there's no sign of it. So there you have it. Those are the sort of three initial very famous and very dramatic accounts. Both uh, Marcella Bennett and Linda Scarberry did have later encounters with various kinds of weirdness. And this is not just from Keel's book. This is attested to in various other sources as well. They've both given many interviews over the years, as I've said, specifically uh, in, in higher numbers after about 2002 when the film came out. But they, you could argue that the vision of exactly how the Mothman looks has altered over time, as Lauren Coleman st- says. But uh, going through these this original material shows that they were reporting something that was reasonably consistent. Anyway, from Keel's book, a little bit about what happened to Linda Scarberry after this. Keel writes, Roger and Linda Scarberry were living in a house trailer at the time of their Mothman sighting. In the week that followed, they were suddenly plagued by strange sounds around the trailer late at night. Beeps and loud garbled noises like a speeded up phonograph record. They could not locate the source of the sounds outside or inside the trailer. Worried and frightened, they finally moved out of the trailer and settled in the basement apartment in the home of Linda's parents, Park and Mabel McDaniel. Again, like I said, I'm terribly interested in the story of Linda Scarberry. There's Keel isn't overly interested in focusing on her, and neither are the newspapers at the time, but I do know that uh, this very, very young married couple do divorce shortly after this, and obviously then you have that love story with the Swedish ufologist. I think there's an incredible amount of material to be unearthed there, and I feel like I've just, I've just got a little hint of something that should be tremendously interesting underneath all of that. Rather disappointingly, only a few chapters towards the first half of John Keel's book actually deal directly with the Mothman and those strange 13 months um, in Point Pleasant. The rest of the book kind of spirals off in strange directions. He covers a lot of semi-men in black type stories from all around the east part of the US. He links in a lot of what he calls high strangeness, UFOs, MIBs and stuff from a fairly wide geographical range as well. He does use this concept of synchronicity to tie them in together. There's always a, a time or a number or a name linking these rather disparate stories. And it is clear that he is leading up to something. So just to give the man his due, I'm going to read a little bit about his um, his idea of the ultra-terrestrials. His concept that he thinks is under underlining all this weirdness and the shape that he feels it really truly has. Keel writes... Instead of thinking in terms of extraterrestrials, I have adopted the concept of ultraterrestrials, beings and forces which coexist with us but are on another time frame. That is, they operate outside the limits of our time-space continuum, yet have the ability to cross over into our reality. This other world is not a place, however, as Mars or Andromeda are places, but it is a state of energy. He also writes, These manifestations have always been adjusted to the psychology and beliefs of each particular period in time. The flying saucer slash extraterrestrial visitants are not real in the sense that a 747 airliner is real. They are transmogrifications of energy under the control of some unknown extra-dimensional intelligence. This intelligence controls important events by manipulating specific human beings through the phenomenon of mystical illumination. Our religions are based upon our long-time awareness of this intelligence 
and our struggle to reduce it to humanly acceptable terms. So that's his sort of ultra-terrestrial theory. He believes that all these different types of weirdness are manifestations uh, on behalf of some intelligence that we don't and probably can't understand. A sort of a cosmic trickster, as Charles Fort might have called it. It's a, it's a version of the PUFT, the Paranormal Unified Field Theory, as Jeb Card would put it, the idea that all different sorts of weird things are all tied in together. If only we can look out for these synchronicities, we might have a chance of understanding what it really is all about. This is a unique take that Kiel had at the time. It gave him the opportunity to be both a believer but also a skeptic because he wasn't taking these things literally in the way that they uh, in, seemed to be. He didn't think Mothman was literally a creature. He didn't think UFOs were literally flying saucers that were physical craft from another galaxy. He has a more nuanced take on it and it's a take which has been very effective and very long-lasting and very influential over the years. So, to wrap up, what do I think was really going on in Point Pleasant at that time? I truly have no idea. This is one of the few cases where I don't have a, a quick or a glib explanation. I'm not impressed by any of the capital S skeptic takes that say it must have been a, a, a an owl, it must have been a sandhill crane. Those are too, too pat, too glib for me. I don't think they really address what's going on here. I think we might learn more about this by, you know, an extended study of mass hallucinations and delusions of crowds and that sort of thing. I think once an idea gets put out into the public consciousness, uh, people will start seeing what uh, it is that is being put into their head. And I think that there's a psychological element to this which is more important than simple misidentification of existing animals or anything as simple as that. So whether or not that's a satisfying answer to you, I'm going to leave it there. Something very strange was seen in those days. It proved to be quite unlike any other element or strand of paranormal thought at the time, and people are still really, really into this thing, and it remains a fascinating story. So hopefully you've enjoyed the episode. Please do check out our back catalogue for many, many more. My name is Kian. This is Wide Atlantic Weird. Get in touch with us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or get in touch with us on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Any weird stories you may have yourself or requests for episodes, send them in to us there. We will be excited to believe you, but guess what? The evidence has to be good. So as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by